Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. This morning's reading comes from Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the children of man who, and the, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have, all, they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left, the build, they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. I start the question quick. Show of hands, how many of you would consider yourself a creative person? Sprinkling, okay. Come on, some creative people here aren't putting their hands up. How many of you, though, would consider, or would think that God considers you a creative person? Couple of hands, okay. <laughs> Basically the same hands, thank you. Regardless of how creative you may think you are, and especially regardless of the people here who would say, I can't draw more than a stick figure, I want to submit to you that there is a calling on your life as a creative person, as part of the mandate that God has put on us, commissioning us to go out. In so much as your, your evangelism is concerned and, it, and your life lived out for Jesus is concerned, he wants you to be convinced that he has created you to be creative. And that's what I want to leave everyone here, uh, everyone here to leave with today is to know for sure that because, just because maybe people can't see your creativity, maybe through music or art or, or whatever, it's visual, doesn't mean that people won't be able to see the effects of your creativity. The passage that was read for us is, you know, that famous Tower of Babel. I say Babel, by the way, I'm just going to clear that up. I say Babel. Um, the Tower of Babel passage, which is generally accepted as like a negative thing, right? Fair enough. It, it, was, a bad, it was a bad thing that happened. And uh, just reflecting on what that must have been like. You know, who was that first guy who was like, okay, guys, let's build a tower. We're going to build a really big tower. We're going to have lots of towers eventually. And then we're going to have a really big name for ourselves. I'm going to put my name right on this our name right on the tower, okay, and it'll be great. And we're gonna have some more towers. I love towers, I make them big. So you, you can imagine that guy. And everyone's like, yeah! And they all wore red hats. Um, what <laughs> I come to this passage with though, is not really uh, a negative, uh, uh, I guess, mindset. I actually, to, to be completely honest, I find it very empowering. I find it to be a, a really inspiring passage. Because God himself says nothing they propose to do 
will now be impossible for them. Now, obviously, it was a negative time, but imagine if these people had the best intentions in mind, or say, a Holy Spirit within them. And so, today we're talking about God being creative. Part of that, and because we're at church, and part of this is how do we apply God into all of our life, I want you to be convinced that we are also creative. And so, my first point here is that creativity is an act of beautification. You can imagine that this tower would have been magnificent, right? Just, you know, marble and gold and whatever, you know, things that they could find at the time. And from what I can tell, God is also very much concerned with beauty. God himself designed to every minute extreme detail the tabernacle, the place that he would meet with us, right? He, he did, he was the architect, he drew out the plans, or he, he gave the plans. He was the interior designer. He told you what was going to happen inside, what kind of fabrics, what kind of gold inlays. He, he was the fashion designer. You know, he's like, okay, so the priests are going to wear this. They're going to have a funky hat. And, this, and so he, this is like, God was the ultimate polymath, right? He, he, he could do anything. So he really cares about beauty, and he really is very intentional about making things beautiful. But what I want us to challenge ourselves with today is our definition of what beauty actually is. Because it can't be reduced to what it is today, which is a $571 billion industry. Huge, but shallow. It's a part of, it, of beauty, but it's not the whole thing. And so what is it, right? And, and we, when I think of something beautiful, yeah, I think sunsets, of course, and flowers, and all sorts of wonders in nature. I think of our spouses and kids, they're beautiful. I think of glorious spaces and textiles and art, even food, music. There's certainly a dimension to that in, in, of beauty, but there's, that's only half the story. Now, generally, people have accepted that you are a right-brained person or a left-brained person. That is a myth. Uh, there's, I don't know, there's some stuff that come out that, that has proved that that is actually not true. The, the, the general accepted, accepted belief here is that you're either pragmatic and you, you, know, you, you devise that which is, is functional and practical, or you're creative and you live in this magical world of music and art and fashion and fairies and, and far-off lands and wars that happen in stars or something. That is not necessarily the case. We are not two different things. We've been taught that function is, is the primary concern. Does it work? Is it useful? Is it going to help somebody? And form is kind of the secondary concern. Is it nice to look at? Oh, that's nice. Is it, is it pleasurable? Oh, nice, sweet. That's, that's a nice plus. That's a good add-on. As somebody who my, my career, my whole life is straddling those two worlds, I, I really enjoy creating formulaic spreadsheets in order to run my creative business right? I will tell you that those, that is a false dichotomy. That is nothing that I want to promote. And today, I want to I assure you that if we are created in God's image, we should be both. Should we not be both, right? Is, is God not both of those things all at once, right? He imagined and brought to life the earth, the oceans, the skies, the animals, the humans, right? You, I, we just went to the ROM the other day, like dinosaurs. Are you kidding me? right? Uh, we, we, we go to, you know, the art gallery, same thing, the aquarium, same thing. You think about the Garden of Eden, magnificent trees and bushes full of berries and fruit, and he then pairs those beautiful things to our palates to make us be like, oh, that's, this is what good is. 
this tastes good. And you, like, there's honestly, in a lot of ways, that is one of the biggest evidences of a, a loving designer God who cares about his children, who cares that we live. If it, if it tasted bad, we would not eat it and we would die. So practically, he's, he's provided for us. But also, man, doesn't cho chocolate taste great, right? I know some of you don't like chocolate. That's completely whack. But we'll pray for you. Um, so all these things are glorious in their own right, right? They serve a purpose, and there's function to those forms. But I think, okay, even paintings on a wall, right? Like this, this, this stained glass behind me, they're, they're beautiful, but it also offers a, a platform to pause and reflect, right? If not to tell a story or, or provide commentary on something, or even just to cause the viewer to feel something, whether that's awe or calm or passion or pride to be like, I have a Monet. Like, like there, there's, there's a function even in that. But what I want to convince you, though, again, is that creativity is not confounded to making just nice things for self-expression. But the more we do make nice things, the more beautiful they should be. Because beauty, beauty actually speaks to us, who we are as humans, and we're naturally drawn toward it, and we're naturally compelled to cherish it. Form is, in fact, part of the function. Now, we're, as humanity, we're wired toward beauty and and, and uh, some of the people I'm going to be quoting today aren't Christians and have nothing to do with, they, they may not believe anything. Um, and that, that's semi-intentional because what I, want to, what I want to prove to you is that beauty and creativity is all part of how we are created, regardless of what you believe. Through God's general revelation, we see that beauty and the creative act are innate within the human. There's a prolific designer named Stephen Sagmeister uh, he's got some banger quotes on this that I, want to, I want to share with you today. He says, beautiful work adds the function that not only do we admire it and it gives us joy, but we also tend to take care of it really, really well. He also says, I think it's ultimately inhuman to only see things for their functionality. We want things to be more than that. The desire for beauty is something that's in us and it's not trivial. And finally, the, the antithesis of beauty is not ugliness. It's carelessness. Now, that intentionality that I talked about God having, this lack of carelessness, it means that we're always iterating toward beauty. We're always inventive. We can't help it, right? We're always creative. We're always creating because God, we're created in God's image. And it can take many forms. You know, I think of I'm at a coffee shop and I, I, I see a wobbly table that I'm sitting at. This is actually literally this week after I wrote this. So it just happened to work out that I snapped a pick. But somebody shoved some, a bunch of napkins under, under the thing in order for it to stop wobbling. And that in itself is creativity. That is inventive. That is in, some kind of innovation, which was then innovated upon because now most tables will have a little screwy things on the bottom that you can adjust the height of each leg individually. So we've innovated, we've made that more beautiful. And take us to another part of the cafe. If I'm taking a cup of coffee to go, well, I'm gonna get a coffee sleeve because if I don't, I might burn my hand. And then that's been innovated on, upon with a double-walled coffee cup. And we continue on. Now, what's the purpose of that? Well, other than just to avoid a lawsuit, the purpose, I would say, you know, is maybe it's to avoid annoyance, maybe it's to avoid inconvenience, maybe it's discontentment, 
And I would say that discontentment is a big piece of it. And I, I don't mean a bad discontentment. I kind of mean a holy discontentment. I think there is such a thing. To take this kind of illustration further, I want to share a story with you that I read from um, a book called Creative Confidence. I'm going to read it here. Please bear with me. A 20-year-old veteran of General Electric, Doug, helps lead the design and development of high-tech medical imaging systems for GE Healthcare, creating multi-million MRI systems for the company. A few years back, he wrapped up a project on an MRI machine that, let, that had him spent two years and a half working on. He had the opportunity to see it installed at the hospital scanning suite and found himself talking with the technician who was operating it that day. He told, the, he told her that the MRI scanner had been submitted for an International Design Excellence Award, which is basically like the Oscars of design, and asked how she liked its new features. Doug was prepared to come away, patting himself on the back for a job well done. But then the technician asked him to step out into the hall for a moment because a patient needed to get a scan. When he did, he saw a frail young girl walking toward him, tightly holding her parents' hands. The parents looked worried, and their young daughter was clearly scared, all in anticipation of what lay ahead, Doug's MRI machine. The girl started to sniffle. As the family passed by, Doug could hear their hushed conversation. We've talked about this. You can be brave, urged the dad, his strain showing in his voice. As Doug watched, the little girl's tears rolled down her cheek. To Doug's alarm, the technician picked up the phone and called for an anesthesiologist. And that was when Doug learned that hospitals routinely sedate pa pediatric patients for their scans because they are so scared that they can't lie still long enough. As many as 80% of pediatric patients have to be sedated. And if an anesthesiologist isn't available, the scan has to be postponed, causing the families to go through their cycle of worry all over again. When Doug witnessed the anxiety and fear his machine caused am amongst the most vulnerable patients, the experience triggered, triggered a personal crisis for him that forever changed his perspective. Rather than an elegant, sleek piece of technology worthy of accolades and admiration, he now saw that through the eyes of a young child, the MRI looked like a big, scary machine. You have to go inside. Pride in his design was replaced with feelings of failure for letting down the very patients he was trying to help. Doug could have quit his job or simply resigned himself to the situation and moved on. But he didn't. He returned home. He told his wife that he had to make a change. Now through, I won't get into read all the piece, but through a painstaking design process, he ended up with a suite of newly envisioned MRI machines, decking them out along with entire rooms of graphics that made uh, the space extremely welcoming and extremely fun for kids that looked something like this. For example, this one was an MRI transformed into a pirate adventure for pediatric kids. It got the staff involved, people were acting parts, and it actually got them excited. The whole room itself was rejigged to account for this. With Doug's new MRI machine, uh, MRI redesigned for kids, the number of pediatric patients needed to be sedated was reduced dramatically. The hospital and GE were happy too because less need for anesthesiologists meant more patients could get scanned each day. Meanwhile, patient satisfaction went up 90%. But the biggest satisfaction for Doug lies not in the numbers, nor in GE's healthcare's improved bottom line. His greatest reward came while talking with a mother whose six-year-old daughter had just been scanned in the MRI, pirate ship. The little girl came over and tugged her mother's skirt. Mommy, she asked, can we come back tomorrow? The simple question made all his effort worthwhile. When I talk about beauty, 
Like, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that experience a beautiful thing? Beauty is not just aesthetic. Beauty is functional. Beauty is empathetic. Beauty is not always visual, but even the visuals can be purposeful. It is experiential. On a grander scale, think of God's big story, right? This, the story arc of God's timeline with us is, an ex, is a designed experience, right? He considers life beyond the garden to be actually worth living and that, because he understands and he knows that our pain will draw out beauty. It'll draw out worship, and I would say even greater worship than had we not had the fall, because we know what the contrast is between good and evil, true good and true evil. They say that necessity is the mother of invention, right? We see discomfort, we see inconvenience, and that pain draws out that progress. You know, I think of Selma and, and, and ML, you know, Martin Luther King's future that he envisioned, right? You think about these times and you think, our thinking had to be innovated upon. We had to think about beauty in a, in a, in a different way, that um, th there's a real pain, and therefore we marched, and therefore we preached, and therefore we fought for a better life, we fought for a more beautiful life for us and our children. I love this, um, this quote by uh, Dr. Art Lindsley in a post called um, The Call to Creativity. He says, even after the fall, humans used their creativity to fulfill the cultural mandate. Very soon, people were making musical instruments and many things from bronze and iron. God's purpose was through human creativity to move from a garden to a city. Human gifts and creativity were to be expressed in building increasingly complex houses, buildings, walls, roads, etc. The biblical narrative begins in a garden but ends in a city. The tree of life from the garden reappears in the holy city of God. The setting is no longer pastoral but urban. Image bearers have used their gifts to create new things to enhance each other's lives. This is what human beings are made to do, to use their creativity, their gifts, and their abilities to develop the potential of the creation. And so I would like, again, for us to expand our thinking today to consider creativity being an, an act of inherently beautifying life itself, because God himself very clearly uh, cares for that, and we should also prioritize beauty. And that leads me to my second point here, which is that creativity is an act of community, right? So we're, we're not confounded to being a left or right brain person, but does that mean that we can each do everything? Well, we're human and therefore we are limited. We, need, we have different skill sets and different priorities. Therefore, we need partnerships and collaborations because of limitations of our individual abilities. This is why people partner with people to make things happen and people march together to, to see a cause come to life. We need each other. I have a financial advisor for my business who can rig a spreadsheet way better than I can, who can, who can tell me about the health of my business and come up with creative ways to see uh, my business fulfill its, its maximum potential, right? He's very good at that. I then, in turn, help him to figure out how, do I, how does he communicate and show his value in the world? How does he show up in a way that's meaningful for the people who would care about what he has to offer? So we both have very different things. Now, we're both very creative and we're both very pragmatic, but have extremely different skill sets. And just because I can do basic math doesn't mean I should be a business analyst or a financial advisor. And just because even if he could paint the most beautiful painting doesn't mean he can be a graphic designer or communications specialist. There are very different skill sets that are needed there. And so we need each other to accomplish these things. And 
I always, I always think back at this, this verse that, that hit me many, many years ago, which is Proverbs 18.1, which says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. This is the kind of person who wants to be his own self-made person. I did it. This is, I, I, did, I did all this. I, I take the credit. I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-exalting is this person. He wants you to look at him and think, wow, wow. Wow. He wants you to think that when he sees you. This is a microcosm of the scene that happened at the tower, right? This, this passage says that the people were one, one people with one language. And there's actually a, a sense of unity that we might think, well, that's good. That's actually good, isn't it? Right? Like that they were one. We like that. That's, that's, that's speak that we use. But it's, it's, it's a sense of unity that is not actually positive because you know who else were one? Nazis, other hate groups. Now take a, take a second to consider the, the diabolical creative genius who led the way for these people. These folks were one behind him. They were one seeking their own desire. They were raging against all wise judgment. But just because they march in unity does not mean that the march is noble. And so when I think about a noble march, what then does a noble march look like? And I think in God's economy, you have at minimum two things, that you are reproductive and that you are redemptive. In your march, in your efforts, you do those two things. The work that God did while in community with himself was both reproductive and redemptive. In the beginning, the spirit hovered over the face of the earth and the, the world was without uh, form and void. It was empty. Then the spirit sent out by God the Father to assess, to plan, before he speaks nature into existence through the Son, who the Bible tells us the world was created by. And so, the God, so God creates the world right? And then he said, let's make man in our own image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over livestock, and all the creepy things. Then he commands us to be fruitful and multiply. The efforts of God were to be multiplied. There was, in business speak, more ROI than our whole tower plan. He was reproductive. Humans would not just make more humans, but they would actually continue on the work of creation. This was his plan from day one. And one day, God would come back to do the same kind of work again. Now, simply, not simply to uh, be reproductive, but to be redemptive. One day, his work would be the Spirit once again over the face of the water. God the Father commissioning God the Son as he's baptized in the River Jordan, who spoke again. The world into existence is now speaking new life to a dead world living in sin. So even God himself in the three persons of the Trinity, had multiple roles uh, within the Godhead. Now, that, that is a noble march, I would say. Requires community. Noble march is a noble work of creativity done in community because only in a communal context are we able to truly uh, do effective, reproductive, and redemptive work the way that God designed it. And this looks the same for us today. But what, what one person has charted the course of a revolution without many feet marching behind them. God is a God of community and created diversity, and I think intentionally, to allow for more unexpected beauty to result and that the effects and impact 
that are created would be would be would cause greater greater ripples in the world. Now I'll take a little aside here because you might be thinking, well, well, what about art? Like, what about like let's just talk about the most basic sense of creativity that we think about. What about something just making a painting? And to that I say, there's also still a community. Art is a conversation. Art is one person stating something, whether that's getting something off their chest, going off on a tangent or a stream of consciousness, whatever that is, and then that is then received by somebody else. That somebody else could actually be the same person, the artist, and keep it to themselves, or it could be an audience. But it's received, and that person has the opportunity to respond. I can respond with awe, with a question, with admiration, with anger, with disgust, with confusion. The act of creativity always has an audience, even if the audience is just an audience of one. And on that, I have my third and last point, which is this. Creativity is an act of worship. The creative act is an act of worship to God. Now, to us, to God. There's a book I just finished reading, just recently came out called The Creative Act called, by Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin is a, um, an award-winning music producer. Um, if you've ever listened to music, you've heard him. Uh, he's, he's very uh, prolific. Uh, in the book, he refers to there being a source. It's called The Source, pr proper noun, capital T-S, The Source. And he says that from this source comes all inspiration. Now, in other instances, he does say God, but he believes in a lot of whole bunch of different stuff, so I'm not going to get into that. However, he says that th the point is that he has a, um, a belief that this is the act of creation is a spiritual act. It is inherently a spiritual thing, um, be it the spirit of God or another. There's a force behind our creativity. And even Rick Rubin re recognizes this, that the work itself can be an end and that it should be done as an act of worship to God. And I believe this is an aspect of our filling the earth and subduing it, our having dominion, right? Because what, is, what does it mean to fill the earth and subdue it? Fill the earth, that's pretty self-explanatory. I don't want to give anybody the, the talk here. I think that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. But to subdue, to have dominion, what, is, what does that mean, right? Yeah, we get to name the animals, that's cool. You know, but, but, but there's a sense of mission. There's a sense of going. There's a sense of dispersion that the people at the Tower of Babel were so afraid to do. There's a sense of being on mission to influence culture to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship, as Romans 12, 1 says. Reflecting on Genesis 1, uh, the author Nancy Piercy summarizes in, in a book, Total Truth, what's referred to as the cultural mandate. She says, in Genesis, God gives what might be called the first job description, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. And the, the second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. The passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create cultures, build civilizations, nothing less. And I love this summary because it encapsulates all of humanity's life's work under God's first command, whether you're uh, an artist or an engineer, whether you're a CEO or a barista. Now, creativity is most beautifully portrayed when we do it as an act of worship, knowing that God's given us this world to do something beautiful within it. We can continue his creative act. And now, if, if we don't think this way, what tends to happen? 
I see that we tend to abuse the earth. We tend to not steward its resources well. We disregard our call to create. We disregard our, our mandate to create order from chaos and leave the problems of the world to somebody else for, to, you know, to create something beautiful, to fight for justice, to progress toward whatever we're too lazy to do ourselves. And we chalk it up to this whole, it's gonna burn mentality that so pervades the church. We say, we'll just be over here doing our thing, building our tower, creating a name for ourselves. And we neglect the blessings of God that come when we go, when we are on mission. And this, I, I, I don't think, is worship, worshipful creativity. I believe that this is idolatry. So on that note, while the creative act can be an act of worship to God, it can also be an act of worship to others, namely ourselves, usually ourselves. Tim Keller and Catherine Alsdorf have a, a, a good explanation of this. They write, nowhere in the shift from work as grateful steward of our gifts to neurotic fabrication of our self-worth is more, more evident than in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. What were the builders of the tower doing their work for? What are most of today's most ambitious workers doing their work for? Verse 4 tells us vividly, and the motivation has not changed from that day to this one. It was to maximize their power, glory, and autonomy. Yet even this boast reveals their radical insecurity. To make a name in the language of the Bible is to construct an identity for ourselves. Whether we get our name, which is our defining essence, uh, our security, worth, and uniqueness from what God has done for us and in us, or we make a name through what we can do for ourselves. The reality is we tend to erect our own towers of Babel. Babel, I said Babel. They are created for our own glory. They're untethered from actual true divine inspiration. I'll give you an example of this. I drove by this the other day in Las Vegas. You might have seen this all over the internet. Um, people refer to it as the Las Vegas sphere, whatever, the MSG something or other. Lots of talk about it lately, and which rightly so. It is a technologically astounding feat. This is basically, this is the, lar the world's largest TV screen. This is, like, this is video that's happening here. If you haven't seen this, th this, is, this is a stadium of sorts that will hold, uh, I don't remember exactly how many people, but many, many people. And the more you dig into this, the more you see where this came from, the more you realize that this is an absolutely hollow pursuit. This was eight years in the making and $2.3 billion a vanity, a vanity project by the person who came up with this. And I'm thinking about this guy and I'm thinking like, how do you, how do you, how do you sleep at night um, creating something just for your own sake, creating something so labor intensive, so uh, vain just for yourself. And maybe, maybe you think, okay, it's providing jobs. Cool. Absolutely providing jobs. I think that's great. But for what, to what end? Is it for the bottom line? Is it to create a new place of worship for others and ourselves? Is it to exalt ourselves? Is it to find security in the accomplishments and creations of our own hands that we had an idea and look, <laughs> I'm amazing, I did it. Isaiah speaks of this and he says that we create dumb idols that are useless. All who fashion idols are nothing and they, the things they delight in do not profit. He talks about an ironsmith 
takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers. He works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry. His strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil, shapes it with planes, and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in the house. That's a ton of work. That's a, that, that's a ton of work. Then it becomes fuel for, for man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles the fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns over the fire, half of it he eats meat and roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ahaha, I have, I'm warm, I have seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes it to a god, his idol, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Sorry. And they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, God shut their eyes, so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. We've convinced ourselves that this is a, a worthy thing to do, even though it's absolutely dumb when you, when you look at the facts. Creativity is work, and it can be a good work if we are paying attention and creating as an act of worship, again, to God. This is why Paul writes in the third chapter of Colossians, to work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He's entrusted us this world to be image bearers, to be stewards, and make beautiful that, from, that which is broken. And my appeal to us today is that we would not squander our creativity, because that I truly believe we will be held accountable for at the end. So what's the application? And I, I, I was thinking about what happened in my life maybe that, that, that might apply to this. And I remember when I was in school, when I was in college for design, it was the first time I was ever an A student. I, I finally found my thing. I did really well, thank God. And when I came to graduate, I had some offers from uh, a few of like the top design studios in Toronto. And I was like, Super pumped about that. But at the same time, I used to go down tr downtown and, you know, on a Saturday night, and I'd come back to my car that was parked. And I'd always find these flyers on my car. And I remember being so struck by the amazing quality of these flyers that were advertising the worst stuff, and, you know, with images of lewd women and, and just debauchery. And I thought, man, why does the enemy have such good design chops? Like, he's got all the star players on, their, on his team. And so I said no to the, the, those design uh, studios, and I ended up creating a creative department at the church I was at at the time. And, you know, I worked my tail off, and it was, it was a lot of work. And, but I thought, you know what? This is ministry. Like, this is, this, is, this is what I need to do. And I think part of it was that, you know, I think that there were going to be some more jewels on my crown because of this. I, you know, I, I, I'm fighting the noble fight, uh, uh, the, 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 the fight worthy of fighting. I'm, I'm marching that noble march. And when I think back at it, I don't think it was necessarily. I, I, do, I do think that the job assisted the ministry, but I think it was a job. Even though people were blessed, I was blessed at times for sure. But I don't, I don't think it needs to be more ministry than anything else. And I... I come to realize that I today do more ministry than I ever have back then. God is being glorified through the excellence of my work. My clients can see 
how I conduct myself, how I conduct my business with honor, and they notice and they ask, and when they ask questions, I kind of stick out like a sore thumb in a, in a world of extreme left, and yet my business is unaffected. I'm treating people with empathy as I hope Christ would treat people as well as I know he would. I, I try my best to do that. I consider the, the problems and the things, the opportunities in front of me as an opportunity to create order from chaos, to create beauty from something that may have been an uninspired shell of an idea. Because I don't want to be like the Babel Tower builders. I want to be inspired enough to do what God is calling me to do with my life. As a kid, I used to always wonder, what's heaven going to be like, right? Are we going to have like new colors? As a creative kid, obviously, I'm like, ooh, is there like a mix between fuchsia and turquoise that we just haven't seen before? And it begs the question, though, like, what are we going to be doing? Are we going to be still creating in heaven when the work of beautification is done? And I think, actually, we will. And I, I'm, I'm, I anticipate that we'll be able to create with just more beautiful and accessible materials. We'll be more, they'll be more beautiful, they'll be more plentiful, they'll be more awe-inspiring, we'll be less distracted, we'll be less judgmental, we'll be more pure in our pursuits and pure in our expression of our creativity. And for now, I want to imagine what it's like to create on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.